Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Creative Placemaking Podcast, powered by Local Initiative Support Corporation, LISC. My name is Jordan Carter, and I am your host today, alongside my illustrious co-host, Lynn McCormick. Together, we make up the Creative Placemaking Department at LISC. Thanks for joining us on this fourth podcast episode, and we hope you continue to tune in throughout the rest of our inaugural season. This podcast was created to honor folks using arts and culture to address systems of inequality and those developing creative methods of eradicating said systems. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today's episode, Michael O'Brien. Michael is no stranger to the creative placemaking field and has been serving underrepresented communities, including veterans, homeless families, and returning citizens for over a decade. He is the Director of Learning at the Village of Arts and Humanities and Innovation Fellow at Drexel University's Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation and the founder of Human Nature, a consulting agency working primarily with nonprofits and businesses to support human development and performance. Welcome, Michael, and thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. I mean, welcome. I'm tired. Thank you for having me. <laughs> awesome. I'm excited to be Amen. here. Amen. <laughs> Hey man, excited to have you. So before we jump into everything, we're going to start with a, a little thing we do called the affirmation freestyle That's to get cool. a little bit of warmth going on and love in the podcast airwaves. So I'm going to start it off, then Lynn, and then you'll go. You can get the gist of it and everything. Right. So without further ado, I am enjoying my new warm-up pants that i have on right now i am happy for this podcast and that we're fellowshipping right now i am glad that i got my iphone fixed a couple of days ago i am excellent with my words because i know i am confident in what i'm saying (laughs) that's all i can think of I am happy because I have the sun shining down on me through my window. I am really excited that it's Friday. I love wearing jeans again now that summer's over. And I am yeah. just so happy to see and listen to your smiling vo- voices and faces. And I think that's it. <laughs> All right, my girl, right? Uh, <laughs> I am wonderfully yep. human. I am happy. I am curious and joyful. I'm excited that I'm learning to embrace my new haircut. I just cut all my locks off. I am ecstatic to be a learner and a listener. I am an artist who loves to do the art thing by himself and with other people. I am here when I am present and I will stop because I'll just keep going. (laughs) Nah, that was, you're the best, you're the champion at it right now. You definitely uh, get the, uh, you're in first place for nice. sure. Theater and improv, yeah. right? you know, that's my background. So you set me free. Yeah, I'm sure. ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, um, I personally am a big fan of your work ever since Lynn introduced me to the oh, thank you. stuff that you have going on in Philadelphia. No problem. And to start, Could you tell us a bit about your upbringing and how that experience shaped the work that you're doing today? Yeah. um, You know, I'm originally from Hartford, Connecticut, you know, a New Englander by trade. Hey, Um, we have something in common. I didn't know that, Michael. Are you from Hartford or New England? No, I'm from New England, though. Oh, nice. Nice. (laughs) What part? Where where are you from? I'm from Providence. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Way of Massachusetts and Boston. Oh, nice. Yes. <laughs> and new, and so as Lynn is aware, New England is a special place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, those 13 original colonies, right? New England is a really special place, um, good and bad. <laughs> but we will yep. all of that. We'll have another you know, conversation a, about that later. <laughs> yeah, but, it, you know, in, in the upbringing story, it is a part of my upbringing because I didn't realize that Connecticut, particularly Hartford, was predominantly white until I was like 11. Right? I mean, but it speaks to the kind of hyper-segregation that exists in a lot of our cities and urban areas. Um, and growing up with that kind of worldview and having it shattered when I was... 11 was a fascinating process and experience. Mm. I never I never forgot that because I, I, I considered myself to be a pretty smart young guy and I didn't understand how I didn't know that. I was like, what? I'm not dumb. Like, how did I not know that? Um, or what, like, why was this kept from me? Um, all that being said, though, I love mm. art. I've always loved art and making and stories and music and theater and writing. And I like visual art. I'm just not good at it, but I do paint sometimes holding a paintbrush for all those don't know i really like to hold my paintbrush um all that being said i was fortunate to go to a performing arts high school and took classes and stuff like theater and social actions and learned about theater of the oppressed and i participated in programs um that paid me to to act and to write uh, skate scenes and skits and perform them particularly this organization called looking in theater really focused on uh, like the humanity of teenagers right? and all the stuff that an adolescent can face. And we put them in scenes and would perform them for people and do talkbacks and character. I mean, it was wild, but people got to see themselves and their lives and issues that they run from on stage. And yeah. I saw it as a 13 year old when I was in middle school and was like, this is kind of like Jerry Springer. Like I said, you do these six, seven scenes and character then do a talk back improv with the audience and character. And then you do another six to seven scenes and then do another um, talk back and character. And then the final talk back was as your full self, your real self. And mm -hmm. you talk about these issues and whatnot. And I was just like, man, this is wild. This is Jerry Springer. This is entertaining, but this is not helpful. And the next day I remember walking by the guidance office and there was a line of people trying to talk about their issues. Um, and then I remember just walking through the day and remembering scenes and things and thinking about my own life and traumas. And I was just like, wait a minute, something <laughs> has happened, <laughs> right? The art has done something powerful. Uh, the art forces us to look at ourselves and see ourselves and our humanity and see the dark crevices of our humanity that we don't like to highlight or that we're afraid to highlight or that we've not consciously, but you know, the brain will con subconsciously push things away and down. Um, so anyhow, all that changed my life. And I knew from that moment, like art could do something different than just entertain and be productized, that it could actually move humanity, that it could actually help us close bridges and gaps. It could illuminate, it could agitate, it could educate, it could heal, it could bridge, it could do a lot of things. And so I became obsessed with that, went to performing arts high school, went to college for music and, you know, leaving music school, immediately went to work in Miami-Dade County on a migrant farm working camp and with migrant farm workers, Latinx predominantly, and taught their kids in music. It's part of this larger uh, program with a bunch of arts courses. And it was, again, geared towards migrant farm working children, but 
would service anybody that came and I learned a lot about the world. And I, I was first introduced to trauma theory down there in training and also introduced to the idea that black and Latinx people don't get along in a lot of places. Well, actually I learned that in Philly because where I grew up. Really? Yeah. Oh man. I thought I was Puerto Rican until I was like five. Uh, and I'm that's not that is not facetious. My mother would tell you that story. I think I might have even cried when I found out I, I was devastated. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not Puerto Rican. Like, I knew I was Puerto Rican because uh, most of my friends growing up were Puerto Rican. Remember, I grew up really segregated, and so you yeah. had black and Puerto Rican people sharing a lot of the same space. And on one side of town, it was more black uh, in terms of the ratio than Puerto Rican, and the other side of town was more Puerto Rican than black. And then kind of in the middle, it was a bit even. And I we lived in the middle section for, you know, I'd say the most formative years of my childhood between the ages of like five, five six to like 10. Um, not developmentally the most formative, that's zero to six from a science standpoint, but in terms mm -hmm. of like making my friends and I really began to identify myself. Um, you know, again, I always had a bunch of Puerto Rican friends, but I thought, <laughs> I really thought I was Puerto Rican. Um, yeah. So moving to Philly, I saw the segregation here. This is such a long answer. And really was stunned because I moved here and was like, everybody's black or white. Where are your Latinx folks? And they were like, oh, you got to go up north and over to a corner for that. And I was like, what? That's weird. And and Philly was where I first got the taste of like non-black brown solidarity on that end. And I was like, that's just weird. And then when I went to Florida, like I said, to teach in this program, I mean, they had to get do some special trainings for the black folk <laughs> because they were like detention is high uh, and we just want you to be aware and i was like wow um and i had an amazing experience down there with people seeing past that and loving me for me and yeah i learned a lot about trauma and art and i've wow. kept it with me ever since that's an awesome practice can michael can you like one of the things we're trying to do on this in these conversations is sort of break down some of the jargon for people who might be listening in and um, the word practice has come up a few times in terms yeah. of like the way you're talking about your work. Can you talk about what practice is to you? Yeah. Okay. I love that. So the first thing is practice is what you do and how you do it and what's behind it. And you got to spend time with it. And perfect practice makes a perfect performance, right? People say, you know, practice makes perfect no perfect practice makes a perfect performance and because if you practice mistakes that's what you're gonna get yeah you feel me like there's a, like mm -hmm. I, what i love about art school is art school has these like simple principles that just like <laughs> you can amplify and take with you to every domain in life and i'll never forget it. i had a teacher in high school used to yell at us like stop that practice makes perfect perfect practice makes perfect stop yes, practicing like you're done words to live by <laughs> right and and people used to get offended when he would say things like don't practice like you're dumb and i'm like because i'll get offended he knows we're smarter than that, right? Like one of the best things that my school, my high school taught us about the idea of practice, right? And I'm, I'm going to talk about practices on two different levels, right? This the idea and activity of practice is that you're there to practice. You're there to refine, actually. Practice is what you're supposed to be doing on a regular basis. Class is where you're refining and showing what your practice has resulted in. You're getting feedback, you're chugging through it, you're refining, getting critique, and then you're leaving the room and going back to more practice, right? So practice one is a way of life and a way of being. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing that they taught me was that 
I wasn't there to get complimented, right? Practice is not about getting compliments. Doing the work and refining your work and growing skills and trying new things, it's not about getting compliments. It's about developmental courage. Right? It's about trying new things, being courageous enough to make a choice and be okay with that choice being wrong, being open to feedback around that what you can do better and, and maybe just making a new choice and then trying it again, right? And doing it over and over and over. So, you know, we're not there to get compliments because the fact that we auditioned and got in, th th we're all good. Now it's here, we're here to get better and practice is that methodology. And so when it comes to like my personal practice, it's I have all those ideas in that space. And it's also about what have I collected over the years by utilizing that space through those kinds of like thinking paradigms, if you will, or constraints around what practice is for. Then it's about now what can practice also be? So it's also a practice is a space for me to explore. It's a place for me to collect things that work for me when I'm trying to achieve a certain end. It's a place for me to be curious. It's a place for me to collaborate with others. It's a place for me to um, sharpen my tools and grow my toolbox and toolkit and keep practicing developmental courage. Um, I hope that that wasn't too opaque. <laughs> mm -mm. No, uh, that, that I got a good synopsis of what it was, honestly. So it makes me think about this idea. Yeah. Is if practice is the way of life, perfect practice can't be that either. Mm -hmm. That's right. Because this is the thing about perfect practice. I love that. Your goal is perfect practice. But to get to perfect practice means you got to make like 50 mistakes. Right. So mm -hmm. if you're and, and the mistake is not a bad thing, it's a part of how you get to perfecting. It's a part of that journey. Like you need the mistake to actually get yeah. to the mastery. So you can't master a thing without mistakes. It's just not possible. Yeah. Right. So like you got to fall out of your turn as a dancer. Right. You got to fall out of your turn a bunch to really understand what it takes in focus and breathing, what muscles you got to move and contort when and how to pull up and how to center your core and where to focus your eyes so you don't get as dizzy, et cetera. Like you got to do that a bunch and you're going to mess up. Piano class, that was me. I remember being like, well, I got the right hand. I got the left hand together. Oh my God. Right. Like it's just a series of, of messing up. And Jordan, you went to school for uh, music too, right? Uh, did you guys yeah, have hand? Yeah. Did you guys have hand in exercises? Oh yes, yes. Oh, yes. I hated it. Absolutely, right? Because hand in is not about getting it right; it's about messing up a million times. Yeah, until you finally absolutely, get it. absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to even think about all of that. You know, that's <laughs> triggering a little bit. You feel me? I kind of got the shakes just thinking about that. But nevertheless, you know, music. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. No, that's what I learned, bro. Is that to do anything well in life, you gotta be open to failure and mistakes. And um, I'm, you know, that's that's preaching to me right now because I got things at 35 where I'm like, Whoa. well, right? I mean, honestly, Michael, like where you, the the work that you do and the community that you work with and in. You know, I, I'd be interested in hearing more about how all this practice applies to the work that you do at the village in Eastern North Philly, you know, and the yeah. conditions that exist there that people who are listening may not understand. Yeah, man. Um, 
unfortunately, you know, human beings are not meant to suffer. Those suffering is a part of the human experience, right? Um, and I think we've all been conditioned to allow human beings to sit in suffering across multiple domains for way too long. Um, and then we see the results of that intergenerationally and we don't know what to do. And unfortunately, that is um, a large part of the story of uh, the neighborhood in North Philadelphia, actually neighborhoods across Philadelphia that I work in. Um, you know, the village is in particular neighborhood in North Philadelphia, the Hartran Fairhill neighborhood. And, you know, it, it, there is a story there of decades of disinvestment. You know, the city left it alone and forgot about it and allowed people to sit in social decay, not of their own making. You know, let's be very clear about that one. Um, but having to deal with those results and make sense of it and try to organize their life and access family sustaining wages and all that context. Um, you know, on the flip side of all that, it is also one of the most resilient places I've been in. Um, people literally made stuff out of very little. You know, the village of arts and humanities is a part of that story transforming blighted spaces and places and building community art centers in the middle of the neighborhood that still exists to this day. We're talking like 50 plus years. Um, and so in terms of mistakes, right, there are 50 years of them, right? I've only been a part of five years of them, five and a half, almost six. On the flip side, there's 50 years of successes, right? And I've been a part of five years of those. And I think the journey is about making sure your vision is proper because depending on where you stop telling the story, it's all about a piece of failure for one specific time. Um, and depending on how you choose to keep going through that story, you can see how learning is happening and people making better choices, right? So some of the things that we failed in, um, you know, at one point we were failing with how we were serving the young people and they were leaving the program. And I knew we were offering good stuff, but if they're leaving, I'm like, something's off. And so we don't believe in waiting, you know, till very formalized checkpoints to get data back. We just talk to people, right? We'll do the formalized data thing too, but we talk to people and get informal data. We'll, I'll pull a ad hoc focus group in two seconds, right? <laughs> With the kids and uh, or whoever. And one of the things that I learned was they needed money. We're in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city of Philadelphia. We've got the lowest life expectancy by zip code in our neighborhood. That The story about life expectancy by zip code that rocked the city about two to three years ago starts with a quote from a young man that goes to the elementary school literally two blocks away from us, right? Like the, we, It's the most incarcerated zip code in the state of Pennsylvania. That's our service here. That's where literally our zip code is where we're at located. So these challenges are real and young people needed work. And so we had to reimagine the program with them to solve for those things. And now we've got a pre-employment and pre-apprenticeship program that's popping and we're serving young people now up to age 26 and employing them at, you know, $15 an hour at 12 hours a week in a strategic design fellowship for six months. And we're, you know, with the young folks, they can make 
$100 every two weeks. Um, we changed a little bit during COVID and doing some benchmarking based work, but they still have a pot of money up to about $600 plus that they could draw down on by hitting these benchmarks. And we further incentivize them with other funds. So we adjusted, right? But that's what I mean by like if you stop the story at a certain point, we failed. If you continue the journey, and if the people on that journey are committed to learning from what wasn't working and trying something different um, and just going out on a limb and taking a risk, then, you know, you, you find success. Or you can. I say you can. The fellowship with the 18 to 26-year-olds is a manifestation of them leaving the program at first and then some reform happening and it is what it is now correct yeah yeah in fact there's a step in between that right where that program is a is like a outgrowth or or the next iteration of the first change we did which was when people were leaving just start paying them like we reformed the program to help Mm. people have um early work experiences it's a really we took a creative agency model and applied it to like an apprenticeship model for high schoolers okay and then from there that went really well and we were invited to apply for a grant for the public health department that looked at matching creative agency and design services with their goals for youth health and youth health promotion in the region and what an intersection yeah got the grant and and we had some history of doing some public health centered work not with the public health department but with other public health agencies we did a we designed an entire campaign around childhood trauma and adversity and resilience that looks it's beautiful um and we worked with 50 young people some as far as north carolina for that it was a wild project that just kept growing and growing um so yeah so we got that and now can service young people 18 to 26 in this fellowship program You know, so it's great that this program is in existence and hopefully it can be replicated for many, many cities in this country. So more folks can, you know, mobilize themselves and have a fighting chance in uh, in some of uh, in some of your work. I've read that. The arts and culture community isn't necessarily preparing artists, teaching artists and other creative stakeholders to be resilient workers in the age of automation. And to me, it seems like we could pivot towards a new system of education that is grounded in creativity and human qualities that aren't easily copied by artificial intelligence. And I'm wondering what type of school that would look like or if you've done any imagining of this type of work for artists and teaching artists to be able to be prepared to fight for their jobs back in opportunities that are getting taken away by automation yeah i mean i actually think we don't have to look too far a lot of performing arts high schools across the country are getting this right it's really about what are we doing with what people are learning in those places and spaces? And are we adding to the formalized education day to help young people imagine and reimagine how those skill sets can be used in other ways? Are we exposing people to other career paths and showing them how those same skill sets could be applicable in those places and spaces? 
Um, so I don't think we need to like reimagine schooling per se. I think what we need to do is look at what's working in a lot of places and then adapt, uh, excuse me, adapt the places that are not doing those things to those models. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because, and I, and I bring it up like that because I think a lot of times people hear comments like that and they're like, Oh, we got to start from the bottom up. And it's like, actually, we don't have to start from the bottom up. We didn't say it's not that everything is wrong and nothing is working. It's just that predominantly public education at large is not built around the premise that you just laid out and that I talk about all the time, which is that our core human qualities and skills, creativity, problem solving, conflict uh, resolution and management, communication skills, and um, you know the power of metaphor and comparison and analysis in ways that include the emotional faculties as a method of inf- informing us about a thing or an experience right automation can't do that it's not yet um and so we that this is where we will do well to equip young people and people currently in the market looking for new and inventive work because the thing about automation is that the threat of automation has existed for decades and decades and you can do research and look at newspaper and media clippings uh, talking about the same things we're talking about, all the onslaught and all the jobs are going to be lost and everybody's going to eat bread and dirt. Um, And (laughs) the flip side of that is also true that new jobs popped up that nobody was expecting and people were unprepared for that work. We don't have to do that again. Right. I mean, there are some things that make this moment a little bit different than the past, but the premise is still there that new work will be emerging on us in real time. And the question is, mm. are we thinking preemptively enough uh, to just be as prepared as possible for those things as they emerge? Um, and are we also just creating new work? Because the opportunity is here to partner with technology, automation, VR, AR, all the things, right? Um, and start trying to solve for complex challenges that have been beyond our grasp for some time. That work needs to be funded. And all of that could be in school. Like why, why not have young people co-design the world they want to inherit from us who are screwing it up. And I say us very lightly because I'm only 35. (laughs) I've been, I've been a part of fixing stuff since I was a teenager, as I said earlier. So yeah. You know, I I really um, admire the the spirituality and everything that you bring to the work Thank you. as a guiding principle. Yes, as well as how you include the social emotional aspects of human development in your work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, during a presentation, you you were um, delivering with the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. You mentioned that we make meaning out of things as a result of our past complex emotional experiences. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with that idea. And it made me think of uh, the notion that laughter is the truest form of honesty. Mm. Because if you hear a joke, you know, no matter if it's woke or not woke, all these experiences (laughs) that you had in your head go to that one moment when the mic, when the comedians say that on the mic and you just... You got to cover your mouth because, you know, it is what it is. And that's um, that really, really resonated with me. And it also if. If that's true, you know, it also made me think, you know, it make prejudice a natural occurrence as well mm-hmm. with all of these lived experiences. 
culminating into one preconceived notion, whether that be helpful or dangerous, because that is it could be it could possibly be natural to their consciousness, to our consciousness. So with that being said, do you think that is one of the reasons why it is such a difficulty for all folks to unlearn some of the things that have become natural within their upbringing that they've been that we've been conditioned to believe and think that is a fantastic question and boy is that a loaded question <laughs> loaded in that like yeah, it's just multi-layered so you went you said <laughs> yeah right, good, job, good job no no here we go so one of the mechanics of our humanity make that very hard right the the body is actually yeah. more resistant to change even though it's an adaptive thing, right? Like the body is always adapting, but it doesn't want to change 24 seven, right? And so we've got this interesting mm. conundrum. It's the idea of homeostasis, right? Your body, the, your body state is not trying to change 24 seven, right? You, you wouldn't be able to survive yeah. that. But on the flip side, if you don't change at all, you can't adapt to new challenges. So yeah. we're an adaptive species and it is both our Achilles heel and our greatest, you know, aspect. One of our greatest aspects, right? Um, and so one of the things to think about and what you're talking about is that um, we are we are meaning-making creatures, partly through uh, narrative work, partly through um, the way that we begin to build mental models over time of how the world works, how we interact and engage in the world, what we can begin to expect of the world in response to how we show up. You know, th that, that stuff is cumulative and built over time. But it starts very young and very early, right? So it's really important that we set young people, one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds up with exploration and opportunity for invention, awe and wonder. We should be always inspiring those moments because the older they get, you know, they're, they're not entering school with a blank slate at five. Hmm. They've got five years worth of stuff that has occurred that is being built on now. And that's important to remember. Um, it's also important to remember in terms of the mechanics of our humanity that bias and the imaginative faculties go hand in hand, actually. Um, that bias is using the imaginative faculty to get to certain ends and answers. You said bias and imagination are going hand in hand with one another. Absolutely. Think wow. about it. When you are imagining a scenario you're coming up with pictures, ideas, thoughts, symbols, all kinds of stuff. Bio yeah. is just directing the mechanism. You get oh, what I'm saying? Yes. Yes, right. clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have, humans have symbols for things they don't have words around or have words for. Every word that you have in your vocabulary has a complex series of symbols connected to it. But the, again, the flip side is also true here. Again, this is the mechanics of our imagination. You have symbols for things you don't have any words for, but you have an emotional response to symbol. So you have things that with no words where you have an emotional response to that thing. Um, when I talk about this in um, presentations, sometimes I, have, I, I use this picture of a bunch of black boys in hoodies from this art project. 
And I put it up there and I leave it up there while I'm talking. And I know that is pissing people off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I, it's on purpose It's because I'm trying to be visceral with the fact that just because you might not have words for a thing does not mean you don't emotionally or, or effect, effectively have a response, an affect. When I say effectively, not effective as in EFF, but affect, AFF, uh, being your emotional state, you have an affective response. And that is going to influence how decisions are made. It's going to influence the other pools of reference, images, thoughts, experiences that you're going to pull up to reason with in that moment about a thing. Um, And so that's just some of the mechanics around your question and why, yes, it is very hard to change those things, but it's possible. What's more possible is learning how to disrupt those things. It's an activity called debiasing or activities called debiasing right you every human has a bias mechanism it's a part of your survival mechanism like you got to have one the flip side is that it is highly influenced by what happens socially the meaning making piece things you see and are exposed to or not um and so it's hard to stop excuse me it's hard to change your biases like i don't know that that's possible but you can disrupt the process that the bias would result in right you can challenge the thoughts question them you can and activity helps because you don't always know when you're entering those moments so you got to have activities and things that can surface assumptions or just again cut things off provide other avenues of looking at a thing blah 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 and michael to that extent you know i mean i think the story you told earlier about the the youth that weren't showing up for the art classes anymore you know, that's the perfect example of examining the bias that a lot of folks would have that they're just not interested, right? Because yeah. of X, Y, and Z reasons or making assumptions about lots of things with that particular group of kids and why they're not showing up. And the fact yeah. that you're able to sort of deconstruct that by examining the bias that and the assumptions is really powerful stuff. And I, you know, when I think about the role of artists in community development. I mean, I think that's one of the most transformative, powerful places that artists as community development actors really serve the, you know, the, the movement of, of making things better. I don't know. I think that's a great point in that how many times do we see a thing and go, oh, they just didn't want it hard enough. Oh, they just didn't want it bad enough. Oh, what about the parents? Oh, I mean, we just have all these ways of passing judgment before we have any information. Yeah. You know, as you were mentioning the, as you were mentioning the hoodies, you know, my, my mom said, and this is, this is a lot. But my mom said, you know, Jordan, if I see some of y'all with some hoodies on, I'll probably go the other way myself, too. But, you know, it's honestly, and that's that's, uh, loaded with a lot of, with a lot right there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, it's even more, it's even more uh, of a um, job to know that the enemy is not of the flesh or or anything like that she is not the um the enemy 
when she says that stuff, it's the conditioning and s- environment that yeah. has made that bias true to her, you know. So it's really, it's really interesting to hear that because I naturally want folks to change and I'm encouraging this, the change to happen. But leaving this conversation, I know, uh, and this is the empathy in me, but now, and maybe it, I don't have, I shouldn't have any place for this empathy, but now I kind of am more understanding as to why folks are so slow to progress being that we have a homeostasis within that wants us to stay balanced and an ever-changing world outside that is screaming for us to get with the times. You know, I, I'm kind of wrestling with that internally right now because, and this is on another note with the family and whatnot, but it could also extend to other people's loved ones and whatnot that have a, a thinking that isn't safe right. towards others. You know, it's, um, yeah, that's, uh, th- that's an interesting empathy is an, uh, is a nasty line to tiptoe on when I'm, when I'm thinking of the revolution, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, so I, 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 I'm a little stuck. Well, here's what I would say, bro. It's like nobody has the right to create harm for another human being, right? And so ultimately, at the end of the day, whether or not people want to change doesn't matter because you don't have the right to visit harm on another person. Now, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, ageism, and ableism, right? Like we've grown up in the Western world where those are default lenses and design constraints for how programs and organizational culture and policy has been created and iterated itself over time. And so unfortunately people think they have that right, but I'm here to say cosmically, none of us have that right, right? And I think we're coming to a reckoning point with all of that. And so, you know, using your mother as an example, it is possible for black people to harbor feelings about other black people um, that might not be what um, you know the average person would think of as being germane, right, to your mom, or you know, um, being uh, nat- should be naturally there. But the fact of the matter is, we were all raised in the white supremacy, yeah. and that has an impact on all of us. And you yes. and I grew up in the generation Certainly. where a hoodie, like, I've never looked at a hoodie as dangerous. If you go in my closet, I got mad hoodies of every color and always have, and I'm not getting rid of them. But we grew up in a generation that rocked them. So people don't understand that for us. The flip side is all the folks around us have been socialized to see our image as Black men through media more so than on us and in our humanity. And unfortunately, whenever you want to typecast an urban young black boy in a show, you give them hoodies. You give them all, you give them hoodies and bubble jackets. You know uh, what I'm saying? Adidas. Right. (laughs) Or Air Forces, right? Like, I mean, it's a very, very typical thing. And so, yeah. Unfortunately, when you think about, again, images, symbols, things that have a visceral emotional responses, 
in your body and in your psyche and in your brain, even if you don't have full words around that thing, you still can have emotional and effective responses to it. And those kinds of images have been codified. And those are art. That's art. That's art and media being used to shape and press narratives. And that's a huge part of what's going on in the world. So white supremacy has been using arts and artists and branding and methodologies for quite some time. Isn't it stunning that black people are somehow noted as being the most violent in the country? Uh, and like, and we're almost given this like historic violence. And I'm just like, that is so strange. Because if you go back 70 years, Who's lynching who? Who's bombing who? Who's burning crosses and lighting people on fire? Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? White people Literally. use pieces of our bodies, teeth, skin on the mantelpiece. And we're not talking 100 years ago. Or excuse me, we're not talking in the 1800s. We're talking about the early 1900s, mid-1900s. Like, that's weird. That's wild. But somehow, given the phenomenon of gun violence, which is a relatively recent phenomenon in American history, given gun violence and other quick um, media narratives like the drug trade, Black people became known as the most violent and criminal people on the planet. And I'm just like, that is wild. Wow. What a remix. Bro, that is the remix of all remixes. This is the best branding job <laughs> in the history of branding. <laughs> Yeah. Right, and then it, and it infects everyone because again, we all are growing up under that. Whew. that's a, you know, that's it makes it hard to when you conceptualize stuff like that. It makes it hard to feel like there's a a promised land, you know. <laughs> but and it is. makes it feels like there's a we you just at a stalemate. It's hard. It's and there is a. Yeah, these sentiments are shared by a lot of folks, and it can get, ex it can you know it can be kind of exhausting to, to be, um, an unwilling participant in this in this uh type of type of oppression, you know. But that's so, what power is, bro. Because there's one thing about being unwilling, right, and then there's the other thing about, well, what about my will? What can I do with intentionality and what purpose? What can I learn? What can I practice, right? Back to practice. What can I do? What can be my practice of humanity? Society dehumanizes us, but what is my practice of rehumanizing myself and creating on-ramps for other people to humanize themselves in their own view and care for their humanity and then start operating with an intentional framework around shared humanity? What does that mean? How do we explore that? We, we, we have a ripe moment in time where all the BS is kind of intersectionally present. And okay. we better run with it while we can. Right. And I, and I appreciate our ancestors, bro. You know, I am the lived expression of joy of my ancestors that we, we're still here and we're still rocking and we're living and I can move forward with opportunities and liberties and experiences that they didn't get to have, even though we still not fully free, I can still live out that joy of their hopes and dreams, literally, and that I'm here and connected to them backwards in time and forwards through time, because one day you and I and Lynn will all be ancestors. And what world are we leaving behind? We're standing on the giants of or the shoulders of giants of the past. We're standing on work, known and unknown of the past. 
What work, known and unknown, are we willing to intentionally cede for our young people to continue iterating towards this equitable shared humanity framework? That's our job, and I'm down for it. Wow. That may... <laughs> you make it seem beautiful. Sound beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. You know, I... That was so. That was so eloquent. Thank you. <laughs> Literally, that was a great way to wrap everything up. It was amazing. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. You know, Michael, that was a new level of insightful. I appreciate. <laughs> Honestly, and um, yeah. Uh, I just want to say thank you again uh, for coming through to the podcast because, like, I, I we're inching up on time but i still have so many so many things in my head and everything but i'll definitely we have to link up or do this again absolutely in in another fashion or something like that and before we wrap up before we wrap up we have to do the lyrics for life okay segment that we do to uh close out so if you could um mention some lyrics doesn't have to be the whole song, whole hook, or anything like that, but the lyrics to a song that's been really getting you through the day. Mm. Mm. You know what's fun? This is so this is so interesting. I used to sing a lot of choral music. I listen to all oh. kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. And um. Anybody knows me, I love Marvin Gaye, number one. Just mm-hmm. love, Marvin Gaye. love Luther Vandross. I, like, I listen to a lot of stuff, right? Multiple decades, the whole nine. But there's this beautiful song I sung in a choir when I was in 12th grade. I had the pleasure to take part in something called the uh, National ACDA Men's Honor Course. There's beautiful. A song called, um, oh, I forgot you did class when you know this. Uh, my um, Yeah, no, it was an amazing experience. We sang at Riverside Church, and it was Again, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And um, we sang this song called My Master from a Garden Rose. Oh, yes. It was arranged by a woman named Eleanor Daly. And I I listened to that song. I, I sang, I'm 35. I sang that song when I was 17. And I still listen to that song on a regular basis. It's so beautiful. Anyway, the song says, My master from a garden rose, perfume with spices rare, for tender hands had laid him there to rest amid the roses. So was on a cross they laid him bare and pierced his hands with nails, that we poor men might live again and be with him in glory. And the middle part is, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Then it ends with, My master from a garden rose to go for us to heaven. We will go and meet him there to be with him in glory forever and ever. And it ends with hallelujah. Now, I'm not even describing the Christianity. I'm not even a practicing Christian. And I think religion has actually been the source of so much tension and dehumanizing in the world. But what I love about that um, that song, and, and it's in the music, the audio even more than the lyrics, is this hopefulness and this idea of ascension. And this idea that there is something here and now and better for us and that someone did something for us on our behalf so that we could do something better. And that goes to me back to that whole ancestral thing and me knowing that I'm an ancestor just living right now to become an ancestor, right? And that spirit is what wow. it's about. And that, I think that that song just grounds me in that 
even though that's not exactly what it's talking about, that's what it does for me. Wow. <laughs> I'm thinking of how all of this is all it's cyclical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cyclical. Each one teach one. And, you know, we are also when I think about it, our former selves, not our former selves, but our younger selves, yeah. in a sense, they're our ancestors as well. So mm-hmm. we should honor them just as just as we would somebody that came 100 years ago. It's interesting also is that a lot of times, you know, as you get older, you want to resort back to the things you did as a young person. And as as your ancestor, you know, <laughs> so it's a it's a circle. Yeah. It's a cycle. Yes. I, um, The song that uh is really, really on my heart is On Children by Sweet Honey and the Rock. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's uh I recently just heard this song a few weeks ago and it starts with the lyrics. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Yes. And I really, really resonate with that because, you know, with with my folks, with my parents and everything, it's a lot of, you know, <laughs> a lot of try, them trying to govern the moves that I'm making and everything. <laughs> and I, I'm 25, so I'm still young and everything. I'm still, I still could get into the youth program that you, that you. <laughs> I just that is actually true. Absolutely. So it's like, you know, I'm still in that. It, they're putting me in this intermediary and everything of grown, not grown, but you know, it's just me. I am, I am my own person, and it's a beautiful thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So. This song is super ringing in my heart, you know. <laughs> Beautiful. I appreciate your openness too, and you 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 have such a clear way of thinking and exploring ideas. I really appreciate that. You're great. You're a great host and interviewer. Good job. <laughs> thank you. That, thank you. I appreciate that wholeheartedly. So, um, you know, thank you one more time. for coming through and sharing with us this was a very fruitful conversation and i am looking forward to the next one honestly thank you thank you yes definitely down for the next one and thank you both for having me i really appreciate it thank you michael and thank you jordan for your great hosting abilities amen awesome (laughs) you enjoy the rest of your friday and have a great weekend you too take care This podcast was produced by Local Initiative Support Corporation, LISC, a national community development organization working in rural and urban areas across the country. For more information on LISC, please visit our website at LISC.org. The podcast was also produced with support from the National Endowment for the Arts, an independent federal agency that funds, promotes, and strengthens creative capacities of our communities providing all Americans with diverse opportunities for arts participation and additional support from the Kresge Foundation. Thanks again for joining us and have an excellent day.